The Guardian. Welcome to The Guardian and Visit London's Pod Tours. These tours are designed to be taken on location as guided walks. They should work in real time, but we've divided them into chapters, just in case you get out of sync, and there's a map to download too. If you're listening at home, these podcasts will still work as a documentary in their own right, and if that's the case, then sit back and enjoy. But if you're walking with us, take yourself to the Millennium Dome, probably best to Greenwich North Tube Station. Go up the escalator, double back, and head past the dome on your left towards the North Greenwich Pier, where the clipper boat lands. The Thames Path is right on the bank there. Hit that and turn right. We'll walk you from here to the Thames Barrier, so press pause and meet author Ian Sinclair here on the river. Everything begins and ends with that river whose ebbs and flood is the pulse of London. To each generation the Thames, foaming fresh from the sea and returning again to the sea, might be said to symbolise life itself. Well, we, we found ourselves on the North Greenwich Peninsula, formerly known as Bugsby's Marshes, and we're going to take a walk today down the river, going east, following the Thames Path, to arrive at the Thames Barrier, which is one of the most dramatic interventions on the river. It's one of our oldest deep-seated feelings, I think, about water. We came from sea edge, and rivers started civilization because you could travel in a boat on a river or a bit of log and get places and that's how London started. It's in our DNA. If you live in London the river is what separates the North Bank and the South Bank. The river is what opens you up to the world and what opens you up to the rest of Britain. It's just like being by the sea. It's this sense of sky and it's sort of thing people talk about in the north of Scotland, but actually you can hit it right here. Get the light off the water, you can see the birds diving. It's the first step out of London that takes you away from the known London into the mysterious London of the Thames Estuary. You are beginning to push to the edges of the official zone and out into something else. And it's a landscape of reclamation, regeneration and many, many debates between past and future. We haven't walked 100 yards yet, and even though in some senses this is the most underwritten section of the Thames, we come to a sculptural work called The Quantum Cloud, which is by Anthony Gormley. And the idea is to keep walking, and as you pass along, the figure emerges within the cloud of metal. It quotes the, the back history of what went on here the dock work, the scrap work, the scavenging, the metal work, and so out of these fragments, Gormley has, has conjured up a human figure at the centre of it all. Walk, look left, 
and see how London very, very quickly absorbs into a grander story. That something that seems startling or sensational or unusual at first very soon settles down and takes its temperature from the, the, the pace of walking beside the river. OK, my name's Rich, Rich Sylvester, and I live up in East Greenwich by the old hospital. I think the Thames, it's a kind of hidden corridor, really, for me. It's such a huge physical flow of, of energy and water, and, and somebody once called it liquid history. I can't better that. I can't look at the river without thinking about the Vikings coming up here. I can't look at the river without thinking about Charles V, who came up here in 1519 to visit Henry VIII. I, I keep thinking of all these different people who've sailed up and how, in a sense, it was almost a Heathrow airport for London because, you know, we hear the planes going now today. We perhaps meet or, or wave friends off from Heathrow, but for, for hundreds of years, it was the river was the only way to get in and out of the country. In the same way that the reason the Londoners are here is the river, obviously the river leads to industry. The river is the engine of industry. The river drives London's power and wealth. What you'd see in front of you would have been a hive of industry. The whole river bank was working. Shipbuilding right opposite the dome on the River Lee. There were the Thames ironworks where boats were built. Behind us were gasworks. Little steamboats dashed up and down the river incessantly. Tiers upon tiers of vessels, scores of masts, labyrinths of tackle, idle sails, splashing oars, gliding rowboats, lumbering barges, sunken piles with ugly lodgings for the water rat within their mud-discoloured nooks, church steeples, warehouses, house roofs, arches, bridges, men and women, casks, cranes, boxes, horses, coaches, idlers and hard labourers, there they were, all jumbled up together. Charles Dickens uh, uses London as an organic entity and he uses the river as a system of accessing the deep past and allowing his characters to attempt to flee. Looking back over 200 years, you had on this strip here, along from the dome, the biggest footprint that we can see looking back would be the gasworks. That was an actual functioning gasworks and electrical power station. The whole of that part of the peninsula was deep, deep industry. It opened in the 1880s and closed in the 1970s, so it existed for nearly 100 years and was a huge industrial sites. There was the works, but there was also the big jetty here, Phoenix Jetty, where people brought in coal, which came down from Newcastle. You've still got one gasometer there, but they were the largest structures in Europe at that time. And you can still see the skeleton of the gas holder, like a sort of wedding cake that's been left out in acid rain until it's rotted away. It's, it's, a, it's a magical marker, and it reminds us that there are other kinds of realities behind the present one.
They talk about the the ghost of George Livesey, who was the manager of the gas works and became the director of the gas company. And he was such a passionate, larger-than-life kind of character that they believe, the workers believe, that his ghost continued to haunt the gas works long after he died. I think there have been sightings even when they were putting the dome up. I mean, one of, the, one of the most extraordinary things here is how London was illuminated from here. I mean, later by gas, but initially by the soft light of whale oil. Um, whale fleets came from just down the river in Deptford, run by a man called Elhanan Bicknell, and his, his whale vats were right behind us on the Greenwich Peninsula. And this is, this is 19th century, you know, this, this is, this is um, not so long ago, really. It's within, you can almost smell it on, on, the, on the wind now. was marshland. I mean, this, this is why essentially there's nothing here, is because it was impossible. It was boggy, marshy, difficult, dangerous in some senses. Nobody really seems to know who Bugsby was. Was he himself a pirate? Was he some sort of strange landowner? And just the name, Bugsby's Marshes, is perfect, and the stretch of river Bugsby's Reach suggests that you're, you're moving out of the controllable version of London um, and you're moving into estuarine swamps. This is not territory for civilised people, this is for marsh people, they're different and even in recent times you'd get, you'd get camps of travellers and scrap dealers and people pegging it out because it's liminal, because it's off limits, because it's beyond the, the, per the permits of an ordinary city. This idea of a liminal landscape, you read about the architecture of the North Greenwich Tube Station and they do acknowledge that they had to set it up on some kind of technology that allowed it to, to float, is the word they use, as though the whole tube station of North Greenwich is floating somehow within its, its wider hole in the ground because of the nature of the soil and the subsoil there. So for all that they removed hundreds of thousands of tons of soil and, and remediated all the groundwater here when they were trying to decontaminate the site. I think the marsh is still there and if it was ever drained to any extent it's kind of lurking underneath the surface. As, as we come off the gritty tarmac onto the cobblestones we're actually at a junction between two kinds of development. You can look back and you can see the gas holder, uh, which is now dominated by a, an enormous uh, new development, a tower block that's coming up. It's a section of the river that's, that's building itself up into, into a new kind of suburbia in a strange way. And to the east, uh, on our right-hand side, Mudlarks Boulevard, SE10, is done out in, in these sort of uh, primary Mondrian-like colors, a block building. It's called the Greenwich Millennium Village, and in a sense, it's a vertical village. 
I've lived in the Millennium Village for two weeks. I love living here, it's lovely. We've got a balcony that looks over the river, a nice bit of green and some trees. It originally it was a bit isolated and empty. That was about eight years ago. Not more flats have been built, so it's getting busier and live, yeah. Hello, bro. Hi, mate. Hello. Oh, I don't see you on your foot a lot. Yeah. I'm Owen Hatherley. I'm a writer and I live in East Greenwich. I mean, the development of the peninsula is quite an interesting mess, partly because no one seemed to intend it to be like this. To a large extent, even though it kind of initially had all these kind of Labour politicians supposedly directing it, it's kind of area where developers did more or less what they liked. And so it's the sort of collage of things that don't really matter. The kind of idea behind it was that you would build a sort of gigantic housing estate, but rather than being a kind of monocultural, monoclass place, it would be mixed. Unfortunately, the mix was somewhat skewed. Um, there's a percentage of the development which goes to key workers, but the overwhelming majority of it is sold on the open market for very large quantities of money. So it's, it's a fudge. The original housing here was to do with particular kinds of work. So you were a fishing community and a village would build up. There are no, none of those infrastructure things here. You are sort of abandoned in this marshland which has been reclaimed and you are the pioneers. So the closest thing to it really is the, the first people who settled in America. You're landing in some swamp country surrounded by potentially alien natives and you've got to hack out a living and come to terms with where you are. And it, only time will tell if this is going to work. It's, it's what people do. I mean, any part of London, any part of Britain, any part of the world, you'll find people adopting the, a belief that they were the first inhabitant and that the newcomers are, are, are the, new, the new people. And you can hear that in conversations. Get out of the road! Look at you! Lovely, lovely man. Down a little further ahead is the ecology park and it's worth going there, if for nothing else, to sample what it felt like to see the last bit of real marshland, the untreated marshland, the marshland without the new developments and the bogus cobbles and all the things that we're standing on now. I'm Joanne Smith, the senior warden at the ecology park. Although you don't feel that when you're walking through it, because you're walking along these wide wooden boardwalks, you're actually walking through um, marsh and wet, wet woodland, wet meadow and lakes. Some of it actually goes through the lakes. So lots and lots of it is actually water. The marsh itself acts like a giant sponge. So we have cormorants who come in regularly here, and they tend to roost in here and fish on the river. You can hear a family of coots and they live here all year round and they've nested twice this year so this is their second brood which is why you can still, still hear quite young birds, quite young chicks. We've just passed the Greenwich Ecology Park and there's a fence and 
I can't help leaning on the fence like some kind of old cowboy outside a saloon because I can hear the slap of the tide and I can, I can look right across, right beyond the Thames Barrier itself now to this blue structure, which is rather remarkable. And it's the Tate and Lyle Sugar Factory. Well, the Tate and Lyle Sugar Factory is not only something that fills Silvertown, it's wonderfully named area in which it's set with this saturated air where you could scrape the sugar off your cheeks but it's also a major cultural generator in that Tate and Lyle sets up the Tate Gallery and the, the high culture of London is always upstream but deeply associated with the low culture the generators of money and income which are downstream and we see it on our horizon like a kind of great blue castle and it's a reminder of what was here and it's a reminder of how the dirtiest things in the end pay for the, the finest things, the whitest things, and the granite and the marble come out of belching smoke and tin. Where, where, we, where I'm standing now would be a pretty good place for beachcombing. There are, there are not a lot of places where you, you've got a good, really good access to the beach without having to go through private property or without having to crawl down endless slippery steps. But here you literally could just step off the path, through the fence, and you're on the beach. The coconut was the thing that really got me thinking because I found that in the drift, driftwood on the beach a coconut and if you come down you'll see them regularly, They're, they are regularly washed up. And I kind of grew from, from that into looking at longer bits of timber and wood and it was just an awful lot of effort really, just, just lugging the stuff up the beach. So I did move down to smaller bits of wood focused on tropical hardwood for a while and then uh, got into the clay pipe. In fact, what people say is when you hear that, that kind of clinking sound in, in amongst the, the waves, that's, that's one way to locate the pipes, just by listening. Where we're walking now, I mean, it's quite good. For a brief moment, we're walking just down a country lane and then the undergrowth drops away and we're looking back out at the river again. As we come up to a corner, well, suddenly, what's this in front of us on, on the left-hand side? The Greenwich Yacht Club. That's unexpected. And those are, those are the kind of amazing conjunctions that keep the walk interesting and worth doing. The Greenwich Yacht Club itself sticks right out into the river like a pirate kingdom. I think it's rather wonderful on all of its piers and jetties. Uh, this is an astonishing building. And you, you think it's uh, a private kingdom of a sort uh, where, they could, where they could sit and, and uh, look at the river. Fantastic, I, I love it, it's wonderful. Joseph Conrad, Heart of Darkness, 1899. The Nelly 
a cruising yawl swung to her anchor without a flutter of the sails and was at rest. The flood had made, the wind was nearly calm, and being bound down the river, the only thing for it was to come to and wait for the turn of the tide. This yacht club respects very much the spirit of Joseph Conrad himself, uh, the greatest, really, river writer that London has had. He loved nothing more than to come out in one of these yachts in the evening with two friends of his, one of whom worked in the city, and it became the basis for his most famous story, Heart of Darkness. The sea reach of the Thames stretched before us like the beginning of an interminable waterway. In the offing, the sea and the sky were welded together without a joint, and in the luminous space, the tanned sails of the barges drifting up with the tide seemed to stand still in red clusters of canvas, sharply peaked, with gleams of varnished spirits. A haze rested on the low shores that ran out to sea in vanishing flatness. We've come right round the Yacht Club, and behind it, a rather dramatic skeletal structure of the aggregate zone, which is like going into a desert, because you've suddenly got huge mounds and alps of small stones uh, with plants growing, growing out of them, and you're, you're into a, a much more industrial sense of the river. The jetty, the pier shoots and slides that run run out of the aggregate zone and there are the clankings and clangings that remind you that any hint of the, the pastoral has been laid behind us and we're moving into a, a totally industrial landscape. There's a fine dust dripping over everything. It's, it's blowing off these slightly sandy aggregate alps and mountains. Glasses are suddenly misted over. Shoes, if you look down, are covered with a fine dust. Obviously it's in our lungs. And hundreds of shopping trolleys rotting away skeletally in the mud. So it's the best art exhibit in the whole stretch. river's tent is broken, the last fingers of leaf clutch and sink into the wet bank. The wind crosses the brown land unheard, the nymphs are departed. Sweet Thames, run softly till I end my song. The river bears no empty bottles, sandwich papers, silk handkerchiefs, cardboard boxes, cigarette ends, or other testimony of summer night. The nymphs are departed, and their friends, the loitering heirs of city directors, departed have left no addresses. By the waters of Leman I sat down and wept. Sweet Thames, run softly till I end my song. 
sweet Thames, run softly, for I speak not loud or long, but at my back in a cold blast I hear the rattle of the bones and chuckle spread from ear to ear. is the kind of poetry of London. The river is the spirit of London. I need it after about two weeks of living in Hackney. If I don't walk down the River Lee, I feel diminished. I feel um, cut off. I feel shriveled. You know, I actually expand. I feel myself expanding into what we're looking at now, the sense of space and light and movement. I spend my time painting it in different colours and shapes and forms. You set off with a whole load of greys and blues and yellows and there's bright colours, because the bright colours stand out. The river can be a whole mass of colours. There's a lot going on in it. Look at the dome coming out against the dark sky, you know, with the sun catching it. Within five yards of walking now, we've got these, these gulls diving and wheeling. Very soon, the, the voice of the river overwhelms your own voice and you, you, you want to drop into a kind of meditative silence. got an enormous sky range. You can see a storm come up in one direction and go across and lightning and then a rainbow in the next minute. And you know, you can sit here all day and do nothing, just watch what's going on. The river has different moods and there'll be a time like this when the tide is quite high and you can see the boats are just rocking a little bit on the swell. The tide is always talking to you. The ebb and flow of the tide beating against the muddy banks, it's never silent, the Thames, even on the quietest of day. There's always movement. The Thames has its own spirit, without a doubt. When we first moved here, I could actually feel the ebb and flow of the tides. I felt a, a movement, a spirit, an elation as the tide came in, and a, a, a sadness as the tide ebbed. An incoming tide is always a time of promise, to my mind. You never know what's going to come up the Thames. It could be anything, and you're just not going to know. The weirdest thing I've ever seen on the river, the pilot whale that, that came up. We had a pilot whale that came up the river, and we used to stand down the river's bank there and, and watch it every morning. I was out on my balcony, and I saw some big black inflatables come up the river with men with um, machine guns through the barrier. We've seen things like submarines, aircraft carriers. A fast police boat or a harbour launch going past. James Bond landing on the dome. Joyce Logan, she actually spotted uh, a terrorist boat and warned the police about it, and the police caught these folk. Did you know that? I think it was one of the biggest cocaine raids they had in London. It's an unknowable river. It's full of surprises. Let's open the window. Mm -hmm. 
So having come through that industrial alley, as it were, we've got a signpost that, that gives us three directions. There's, uh, we, we've done now from the Greenwich Yacht Club, it's half a mile and pushing on. We've got Hope and Anchor Lane, a quarter of a mile to the Thames Barrier, which is still three quarters of a mile ahead of us. And we could cut back to Bugsby's Way and get a bus if you've had enough. On our left now, we can, we can hear Corrie's yard, which was once upon a time coal importing. As time went on, they changed, they adapted, and they moved into the, the modern world. Coming, coming to the blue, the blue gate of William Corrie, where you see the notice Lightridge Division, Corrie Barge Works, it's worth stopping and looking in. Uh, my name's Dave Evans and I repair barges. They call me Land Crab because I've only been here five years on the river. They've got all different names for different parts of the boat. You wouldn't know it unless you worked on the river. You, know, you have to be here a few years to understand it. If we was on a boat now and we were standing on the bottom, they called out the ceiling. That's what it's like. I'm John Daly. I'm the barge yard manager at Corey Environmental. I've been working here now for 34 years. I joined Corey the day after my 16th birthday as an apprentice barge builder. This is the archive store. These are old ledgers, barge movements going back years. Found it. June 1892. Two and a half inches by nine inches wide, 60 foot long elm at the price of one and six per foot. Wouldn't even buy you a round of drinks today in a pub. I can remember in the old days speaking to some of the old workers when I first started in this industry and they used to tell me stories that they could actually walk from one side of the river to the other just by stepping on barges. I mean, there used to be, I don't know, four or five thousand watermen. Now there's mm, probably about 300, 500. And now, you know, you only see one ship every every now and again go up the, up the river. Let's, let's keep walking, let's move along. I, I think by the time you've walked this stretch, which is dry on the throat, we've had a lot of dust, we've had a lot of dirt, we've had a lot of noise, it's a very attractive prospect to sit down outside the Anchor and Hope pub have a pint, sit at one of the tables, nice big space on the river, and kind of rest and contemplate before finishing the walk up against the barrier, because the, the next stretch, we're, we're very quickly into the barrier after this. This is one of the very few points where you can stop and get any kind of refreshment. And it's the only one on this uh, whole walk that we've done. Press pause, sit down, take your pint, and we'll pick the story up again when you've finished and you're ready to move on. Okay, refreshed. Well, well, we'll push on for the last leg down to the barrier. And on our left-hand side, immediately coming away from the pub, are four dwellings which look like nautical quotations. It's a place for real river lovers to live, I think. And coincidentally, this is where Joyce Lohman lives. I'm living by the river because I've always been fascinated by rivers and water, and so was my mother. 
And I came here 20 years ago and the peninsula was flat, not a dome in sight, not a canary wharf in sight. There wasn't anything much on it at all. It was a wilderness in actual fact. If you just think how many boats have gone up and down outside my window, it's fantastic. The river has a big impact on the room. If a big boat comes past, whole of one wall moves. If I've got a liner, a cruise liner, which comes up the river out there, it fills the window practically. And you see the whole thing go past your window. As much as anything else in this walk, you, you move through contours of smell and sound. So, so it's a kind of orchestrated chamber piece, and it's also in smelloscope. And, and tarmac is, I think, rather nice. It's nostalgic. It's like the smell of new roads, as if the, the river had become a road, the river had become a new motorway. There's a bench that's good to sit on at the end, a slatted bench in the shade of a tree. I suggest you sit down. I'm going up there onto Pier 9, the first pier of the, the Thames Barrier itself, to stand there and, and look back and see where we've been. Being on the barrier itself is exactly like being on the bridge of a ship, and that allows you to, to contemplate it in a different way. In a sense, doing the walk we've done today between the Millennium Dome and the Thames Barrier, quite a short walk, is enough to give you a flavour of, of a voyage, to be able to grasp the totality of this effect of how sky and, and river become one, and the, the thin membrane between them of human intervention is so slight. It's, it's, a, it's a, a story that could disappear tomorrow. You could take a brush and just paint through all of this and it's gone. But, but the, the, the major facts, the geological facts, the natural facts of what's here are the generators of everything and, and the rest is a, is a footnote. And it's a, it's a footnote that we've, we've strolled through and touched on a few elements. But if you walk it for yourself, you'll find many, many more. It's, it's inexhaustible and it's unchanging. great downloads go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio